Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. One of Israel's greatest supporters is Colonel Richard Kemp. He's a former British Army colonel, and he commanded British forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, he's a very strong supporter of Israel, and he expresses himself extremely well. So I want to uh, paraphrase something that he said this he wrote about this week. And he, uh, of all the things I read, uh, during the weekend, I uh, read a bunch of articles from the newspapers, and a lot of them are simply repetitive, and some of them simply don't make sense. But uh, he's really good, and I want to uh, paraphrase what he said. He says that Hamas is by far the most successful anti-Semitic entity in the world today. Beyond all competition, it's mobilized Jewish hatred, Jew hatred around the world, using Israel both as its target and as its primary weapon. It's waging war against Israel for many years, and Hamas has actually inspired and energized international organizations against Israel, like the UN and the European Union, governments and parliaments, the Western media, university authorities, professors, students, human rights groups, businesses, and large sectors of the general population. Some of these people are anti-Israel out of malevolence, some out of ignorance, and others blindly jumping on the woke bandwagon. Consequently, the scale of Hamas's anti-Semitic influence exceeds even the Nazis, from whom it, Hamas takes most of its inspiration. Now, the, the foundations of Hamas' success lie in the Soviet Union. Back in the 1950s and the 1960s, when Israel aligned with the West rather with the Soviet Union, the Soviet leadership decided to undermine American and British influence in the Middle East by fomenting a war of national liberation against Israel. In other words, Moscow was behind it. Moscow invented a Palestinian national identity in order to turn uh, religious uh, hatred against Jews of Israel with the struggle over land. It, it, it understood this would gain much greater traction and support in the West than the religious war. In other words, it's really interesting what, what the colonel says here, that the uh, if it's a fight over land, the West would understand it. If it's a fight over religion, the West wouldn't understand it. So this developed into the most successful slur campaign in history, so what are they accusing is Israel of land theft, unlawful occupation, illegal settlement, apartheid, all these distortions that are now accepted as undisputed facts by so many people around the world. In other words, they made it seem like a fight about land, which a lot of people felt 
thing it made sense. So now that you've had this anti-Israel propaganda for decades, and that's taken us to where we are today, which is a pretty dangerous point. That means that whatever is done to Israel and is justified as legitimate resistance. The, uh, the colonel mentions that he even heard some saying people of Israel brought upon themselves the, sad, the evil of October 7th. They had it coming. And by the same token, any action taken by Israel to defend itself is unjustified, unlawful, and unacceptable. So we are living essentially in a post-truth world, and facts don't really matter. If the oppressed Palestinians are doing anything, it's justified because they're oppressed. If Israel is doing anything, it's wrong because they're the oppressor. They've managed to divide the world into the oppressed and the oppressor. And ever since Israel attempted a two-state solution back in 2005, what Israel did at that time, and I remember this, Israel pulled out every soldier out of Gaza and kicked out the Jews from that territory. I was there at the time when that was done. Hamas has used all its energy to intensify and expand this global anti-Zionist paradigm. Hamas is Hamas has always known it's not, it does not have the military power to achieve its objective, which is to eradicate the Jewish state, and even, it can't even come close to it. Instead, it has weaponized Israeli self-defense to its own advantage. Every attack against Israel has been designed with the overriding purpose of eliciting a military reaction. Israel responds. So it, the Hamas has deployed its weapons, its communication sites, command posts, fighters, and leaders in places where Israel would have to kill innocent civilians in order to protect its own population. And by the way, the IDF takes uh, all kind of measures to minimize collateral damage, but Hamas wants civilians to be killed. So what happens? They, they put uh, uh, their terrorist infrastructure in locations protected under international laws like schools and hospitals and mosques. All this is done on purpose. The, the Hamas's aim, according to Colonel Kemp, is to maximize Gazan civilian deaths, especially of women and children, in order to provoke accusations of war crimes against Israel. So this plan comes together every time, and Israel's defensive action, which it needs, it, it, Israel, it, it really adheres to the laws of armed conflict. It's always accompanied by, and by, by outright condemnation in the UN Human Rights Council and all kinds of human rights groups, and by hostile governments. So all this is planned. Now, the, these uh, co condemnation of Israelists are provoked by uh, Hamas are amplified in the media, on the campuses, including the BDS movement and, and all those like that, and as well as what the colonel calls useful idiots that follow Hamas's depraved agenda. The objective of all these malignant groups is not so much to damage Israel directly, but more to intimidate Jews in the diaspora. They seek to bully the strongest backers of Israel internationally or coerce them to abandon their support or turn against the Jewish state.
So the uh, those who succumb to this manipulation do so both to avoid intimidation and gain social acceptance in an environment where Jew hatred posing as anti-Zionism is increasingly fashionable. It's very effective on university campuses where the student targets lack intellectual maturity, they lack experience, and they really don't know anything. So, uh, so what happens is when you affect the university students, you're, you're establishing um, standpoints that take root for the rest of their lives. It's been well documented that the level of Jew hatred is multiplied when Jewish anti-Israel organizations are present on campus, which are, they are in increasing numbers. Tremendous number of campuses in the United States in particular have these anti-Jewish uh, organizations, hundreds of them. And also, politicians are susceptible to anti-Zionist hate campaigns, especially when large numbers of Muslims are among their voters. This is true, by the way, in Illinois, in Michigan. Look at, look at who gets elected to Congress from these areas. Even those political leaders who support Israel often seek to appease their anti-Israel voters because they want the vote. For example, uh, the colonel points out that uh, U.S. President Joe Biden and U.K. Prime Minister uh, Sunak have repeatedly called on Israel to observe the laws of war and to avoid killing civilians. They do this time and time again, despite knowing full well that Israel always does exactly that. It avoids killing citizens. This is especially dangerous because their words imply that Israel is in fact carrying out war crimes, and this incites even greater Jew hatred. Thus, Hamas and its supporters, in a very carefully orchestrated campaign, they stoke anti-Semitism around the world, and they feed off its malign effects. So, if if Israel terminates Hamas in Gaza, it'll have a major impact for as long as a successor to the terrorist group is not allowed to take hold there, hold there after they get of get rid of Hamas. Now, the the colonel calls Hamas an anti-Semitism brand leader. However, it's not. It's far from the only major player. For the leading com competitors, we don't need to look any further than Judea and Samaria, indeed to the Islamic Republic of Iran, whose controlling hand lies behind so much of this anti-Israel activity. The current conflict has caused a profound spike in Jew hatred. In the West, there's no doubt that after the war, the steady state level of anti-Semitism will settle in again at a new high. That should be of immense concern to the governments in Europe, the U.S., and elsewhere when, when the Jews living there are facing this growing prejudice. It's the responsibility of those governments to suppress anti-Semitic hatred, primarily 
by defunding or shutting down those groups that are responsible and taking a much harder line against the arch offenders. And who are the arch offenders? The United Nations bodies in New York and Geneva. As well as that, government should be working to actively counter anti-Israel propaganda, counter it with the truth about Israel, rather than turning a blind eye or even fueling it as they so often do, even if inadvertently. Here they could apply the same very effective approach that many of them took to persuade their electorates of the need to support Ukraine in its resistance to Russian aggression. So in summary, what uh, Colonel Kemp has done, and I didn't see anybody else even get any near this analysis, he said he made the, the Palestinian national identity is in a struggle over land because the world understands a struggle over land much more than it understands a struggle over religion because most of the world is not really religious. Tell them it's a struggle over land and you get away with it and that's exactly what Hamas has done. Now I want to change this something, uh, the subject to something which is under the headline, but it's really fascinating. Over 300,000 uh, reserve soldiers have been called in, and the IDF's response, which by the way is called Swords of Arm, is considered, this is an essential war, and what's happened is, interestingly enough, since the call of tens of thousands of women, wives and part of army reservists have been left to run households on their own. In many cases, the families are large. <clears throat> Some women had to leave their jobs or at least cut down on their working hours to care for their children. And in other cases, the women had to worry about making ends meet because their husband's businesses were suffering from lack of manpower. Everything was suddenly on the shoulders of the women. Whatever the case for uh, each individual woman whose spouse is going to fight, they're all facing an unprecedented situation, especially considering that this war could last for months. At this point, no one knows where it will lead, with the possibility of an escalation in the north and in Judea and Samaria, not to mention the threat from Yemen. So their wives, <clears throat> the, the wives who were left at home to pick up the pieces are courageous <clears throat> as well determined to help win the war. Just as the army is defending the, our homes, these women are defending their individual homes while facing extraordinary challenges. <clears throat> A woman named Shira Brown, who came from the United States, uh, I think she lives in Jerusalem, she launched a thing called Shiro's, S-H-E-R-O-E-S, which is She Heroes. The, uh, the, a group of women, the, 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 the backbone of our armed forces, these women, spouses of the soldiers, navigate a challenging world, balancing family, careers, and offering support to partners in the army. What they do, they, they, they essentially... Are the, are the home front. They, they, uh, they started a project to begin with involving crafting care packages with pajamas and socks and cooking-making kits, 
and they've collaborated with Tom Noon, which is an Israeli Israeli clothing clothing store, and uh, they're co-sponsoring pajamas, donations from family, friends, and Jewish communities abroad, and they make these possibles. And these packages go to families of reservists serving the combat units. They're hand-delivered by volunteers to save on shipping costs. One of the interesting things about Israel is that there's a definite feeling of resilience and of caring for one another. The uh, These women report, these women whose husbands are in the army, report that the People all the time ask him if they need meals, a place to be for Shabbat, and it's wonderful. It's really the way people are caring for each other. The the this initiative that you're now doing down now is to uh, a, is to make a, a game night package, which features a family friendly game, refreshments, and a special treat. For the woman herself, like a gift card for a breakfast or two during her her husband's break from the army, or a spa day gift. In other words, they collect all these things from companies who are willing to help out. Like for example, a spa day. Like a spa will give a card to allow them to have a day or two vacation with their husbands when they come home from the army. Now, what's happening? Thousands of women today are struggling to get through these difficult times. So they started this project. They're hoping to expand the project and reach thousands more. The, what? What? The, it's not stopping because these are little gestures. They mean the world to the to the wives of the soldiers, and they have to be supported in every conceivable way. So what's happening is that the wives of these soldiers have formed an organization to help each other, and they approach various organizations who can provide (coughs) various services to the families. So we have a situation here where husbands, men of military age, a lot of them have small families, have families of small children, and they, they, they're getting together now organizations to help those families. After all, the soldiers are, are men of uh, military age. Many of them are in their 20s. Many of them have just uh, gotten married. Many of them have just got new children born into their families. And the idea now is to get together and help those who are left behind. It's a fantastic thing. And what they're trying to do is to navigate a very challenging world so to, and to help the, the spouses of the soldiers. Uh, and it, it's an idea that started here in, in Jerusalem, and it's spreading around the country. And indeed, it's something I think is very special about Israel, where they're trying to Support the families of those left behind. And that's a fantastic thing. It's very Jewish, by the way, and it should be encouraged. So uh, I'll be back after the break. 
You're back with Jay Shapiro, and this program is being broadcast uh, between uh, during the holiday season. So I want to uh, bring to the attention of the listeners what the Central Bureau of Statistics has released data on the country's Christian community. The Christian community has about 187,900, in other words, 180,000 Christians living in Israel, and they compose 1.9% of the population, which represents a 1.3% growth from last year. Interestingly, the Christian population has been on the rise for the last two years. In 2021, the population grew, grew by 1.4%. In 2022, there was about 2% growth. Uh, three quarters, uh, that is a little over 75%, are Arab Christians who make up close to 6% of the total Arab population. Now, this contrasts with most countries in the Middle East, because in most countries in the Middle East, the Christian population is declining, and what they call a horrifying growth of Christian persecution. Now, this is according to an organization called Open Doors, which puts out an annual World Watch list. Uh, that's the title of their report, of where Christians suffer very high or extreme levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. Among the top 50 countries in the world in which Christians were persecuted in 2023 were Yemen, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, Morocco, Qatar, Egypt, Turkey, and other Middle Eastern and Muslim-majority countries. These countries where uh, Christians are persecuted are all Muslim countries, and Israel, of course, was not on the list. The On December 31st, 2022, a year ago, the it estimated Israel's population was altogether was 9,656,000. 7,106,000 were Jews, 2,037,000 were Arabs, and 513,000 are listed as others. Uh, interestingly, and this information comes out once a year, and I think it should be of interest to the listeners, Again, I'm quoting the Central Bureau of Statistics. There were 815 Christian weddings in 2021. The average average Christian groom is 30.7 years old, and the average Christian bride is 27.4, which ages are higher than the average marriage age among Jews and Muslims. Now, also, these Christian couples 
tend to have fewer children than their Muslim, Arab, Israeli, and Jewish-Israeli counterparts. For example, in uh, 2022, Christian women had 2,343 babies. Uh, the, the, and of this, interestingly, 73% of them were born to Arab Christian women. Not everybody who's Christian in Israel is an Arab. In 2022, the total fertility rate was an average of 1.68 children per Christian woman. The number of children per Arab Christian women was slightly lower of uh, at 1.62 children per the uh, the, uh, in other words, the Arab women are having fewer babies than they used to. It's true of the Muslim women also. In general, the 2023 fertility rate in Israel is trending at 2.931 births per woman, which is a 0.78% decline from, from the 2,954 but it's a very small decline. It's a difference of about 30 babies the, uh, the year before. So in contrast, uh, this is what's interesting, a, a 2022 report by the Jerusalem Institute for Policy Research said that the fertility rate among ultra-Orthodox Jewish women in Israel was 6.6 children per woman. 6.6 children. And uh, the, the rate among the religious population in general, not what they call Haredi, was 3.9, and the rate among secular population was two children per woman, which is interesting. I think you need something like 2.1 children per woman just to fill up the generation, make sure you, that the coming generation is not uh, smaller than the previous generation. And uh, as I said, the Haredis are 6.6, .6 and the, the Israeli uh, Jewish woman not Haredi was 3.9. So, <coughs> so both the religious and the non-religious are having children at a rate that will increase the population. Now, the vast majority of Arab Christians reside in the northern district, about 70% of the Christian of the Christians, and the Haifa district, about 14%. More than a third of non-Arab Christians, about 36%, live in the, the same area in the north, Slightly more tend to live in the center of the country. The localities with the most prominent Arab Christian populations are Nazareth. They have about 21,000. Haifa has about 17,000. Jerusalem has about 13,000. And a place called Faram, about 11,000. So, according to, again, according to the Central Bureau of Statistics, Christian students uh, tend to be educated with almost 85% of the sector 12th grade students having become eligible for what they call matriculation certification. And more than half, 
about 55% of the Arab Christians continued their studies toward a bachelor's degree with, uh, in eight years of graduating high school. So, the uh, interesting, the, the total number of um, high school graduates in the Arab school system that go on to higher education is like 35%, but the Christian Arabs like 55%. <coughs> Excuse me. So the Christian Arabs uh, have a higher educational rate, and, and it's interesting. By the way, a couple other things out that that the uh, would be of interest to the listeners. Sixteen uh, percent of the Christian students was was in musicology, traffic and transportation engineering, and management information systems. Nearly three-quarters of Christians over the age of 15 participate in the labor force of Israel 2022. Uh, this includes the seven, about 74% of men and about 70% of the women. So it's very high. So in 2023, Israel had an overall monthly rate of participation in the labor force of between 60 and 65%. The uh, so the uh, the Christian Arabs take a very large uh, uh, interest in uh, society and taking part in societal activities, and very few are placed in social welfare frameworks. So, in, in other words, in the Arab society, uh, most of the Arabs are, are Muslims. Uh, there's a smaller majority of Christians, and the Christians are nearer to the Jewish population in their education, for example, and their family size. So, um, uh, I guess to sum it up, Christians and Jews are more or less similar to each other here in Israel, as opposed to the Muslims. So I just thought the uh, listeners would find this of interest. And since I mentioned the Christians, I want to say a few words about the uh, the center of uh, Christianity here in uh, in Israel, which is Bethlehem. And uh, churches in Bethlehem were all, are generally very, very busy this time of year. Christmas is something very special here in Bethlehem. Turns out uh, churches in Bethlehem were empty this year. The violent attack by Hamas in Gaza and missiles have caused most airlines to cancel flights since October 7th. Palestinian Christians have announced, announced there will be very muted Christian celebrations in the church in an activity, and exactly that exactly is what happened. It was primarily... Those who um, were participated in the celebrations on Christmas in the, in the church and activity were primarily priests. The, uh, with the war raging between Israel and Hamas and Gaza, tourism for the last year, particularly the last quarter of 2023, has taken a huge hit. So this follows the COVID pandemic in which it also took a huge hit. So this particularly hurts to Christian communities in Bethlehem, Nazareth, Haifa, and the other Arab-Israeli towns because uh, 
Over 50% of tourists visiting Israel are Christians, which is, I was rather surprised when I saw this number. And they come to view their holy sites, and of course, they boost the local economy. The uh, suffering of the Christian population of Bethlehem, I'm talking about Christian Arabs, due to aggression is not new. The Palestinian Authority has always shown contempt for Christian holy sites. They violently evicted monks and they kicked nuns at the Holy Trinity Monastery in Hebron back in 1997. And they used Christian churches and schools and homes as military bases during the Intifada. In April in 2002, it's 21 years ago, Palestinian Authority forces took over the church in an activity in Bethlehem and held 40 Christian uh, clergy and nuns as hostages for almost 40 days. So the, uh, I note that the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs reports that the Palestine, Palestinian Authority has been Islamizing Bethlehem since they assumed control back in 1995. The, the, one of the things they did when they took over was they changed the city's municipal, municipal boundaries. They changed to incorporate 30,000 Muslims from three neighbor, neighboring refugee camps, which pretty much tipped the demography against the Christians. And the city also added a few thousand Bedouins uh, from a tribe located east of Bethlehem and encouraged Muslim immigration from Hebron to Bethlehem. As a result, the area's 23,000 Christians were reduced from a 60% majority in 1990 to a 20% minority in 2001. As a matter of fact, in that year, Yasser Arafat appointed a Muslim as governor of Bethlehem. In other words, it's, it's been a real Christian city for decades. But now, since the Palestinian Authority took over, that's true anymore. The, uh, incidentally, also, since Hamas took over in Gaza, the Christian population has declined from 5,000 Christians in 2006 to only 1,100 Christians today. And it turns out, whenever they can leave there, the Palestinian Christians have generally chosen to emigrate, emigrate to Argentina, Chile, Australia, Canada, and the United States. The uh, writing back in uh, 2001, a journalist named Hanan Schlein wrote in the Israel newspaper Mariv that he explained why Palestinian Christians do not speak out about their situations. He wrote the following, Out of fear for their safety, Christian spokesmen aren't happy to be identified by name when they complain about Muslims' treatment of them. Off the record, they talk of harassment and terror tactics, mainly from gangs of thugs who looted the plundered Christians and their property under the protection of Palestinian security personnel. And that's what was written in my reef back uh, 22 years, 20, almost 23 years ago. The, the truth of the matter is, 
that Palestinian Muslim harassment of Palestinian Christians is sort of a microcosm of wider phenomenon. An estimated 15% of the world's Christian population lives pretty much in fear and suffers discrimination. In fact, according to the Christian organization called Open Doors, Christians are the most persecuted people on the planet, with over 360 million suffering persecution, mostly in Islamic countries. This organization, Open Doors, reports that during 2022 alone, 5,621 Christians were murdered in these countries. 2,100 churches were attacked, and 4,542 Christians were detained by the authorities. Now, I don't know where this organization Open Doors didn't get these numbers, which are very, very exact. 4,542 Christians were detained. I don't know where to get the information from, and I'm just quoting it. I assume it's accurate. While the worldwide media pretty much condemns Israel daily for protecting our own borders following the worst attack against a Western nation in recent history, most people in the world are simply unaware of the plight of Christians in Arab countries. So this year, the bells are muted in Bethlehem, and Christians around the world should, should protest the persecution of Christians in the Middle East and Asia and Africa. So uh, the, the, our, our, our land, which is the homeland of Christianity, uh, is under attack by Islamic terrorists, and the number of Palestinian Christians in the land of Israel continues to decline. It's just a microcosm of a global trend of Muslim Christian hatred. This year, I think that uh, this year really should be the year for Western Christians to demand that their co-religionists in Islamic countries must also have the right to celebrate Christmas and New Year's. Unfortunately, you don't hear anything about that. And indeed, even here in Israel, the plight of the Christians and news about the Christians does not get many headlines. And I think particularly at this time of year, between Christmas and New Year, uh, this uh, information should become available. We Israel has Israel is extremely good to its minorities. The, the, and uh, it, it, Israel probably has the record for most uh, tolerance of of its minorities, and in particular, if you go anywhere like here in here in Jerusalem, where I live, there is a there are a very large number of Christian church, uh, churches that are active, well taken care of, and protected by the police. Israel does whatever it can to see to to it that its minorities, all the minorities, are safe. And in particular, because um, there are a lot of Christian sites here in Jerusalem, there's a tremendous amount of effort putting into guarding these places to ensure their safety. That's something I think the world should know about. I'll be back after the break.
Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. I came across a few interesting articles that I wanted to share the, essentially to abstract them and share it with the listeners because they, they uh, touch upon subjects which I think are really of great interest and they have an effect on the future of Israel. The first article has to do with democracy in Israel. The article was written by somebody named Asif Efrat, who uh, is an associate professor at the Lauder School of Government, Diplomacy, and Strategy at Reichman University. And I want to paraphrase what he said because I found it of great interest. The question he addressed was, what has the war in Gaza done to the attitudes of Israelis toward democracy. And they, it turns out that this institute at Reichman University is pretty regularly monitoring the political and value-based attitudes of the Israeli public. So what happened was that they conducted a comprehensive survey on democracy of Israel back in July, and this was before the war, about two months before the outbreak of the war. And then they did the same survey in November, which is about two months after the war began. Now, each of these surveys was carried out by a survey company, professionals, and it covered a representative sample of about 1,500 respondents. They didn't say who the respondents were and what sections of society they were chosen from, but there were 1,500 respondents, and the result was a crystal, and they claimed, a crystal clear picture of the before and after, before the war and after the war began, and accurately shows how the war has affected democratic views of the public. Now, again, they didn't say who these uh, respondents were, so maybe they did, but they didn't report, report it. I think that's very important to know who these people were. Anyhow, the results were that the war has affected democracy in Israel very badly. Now, what happens is that democracy could be under undermined, particularly if there's a very strong leader who tries to weaken uh, other mechanisms of government uh, beside himself. Now, to identify the willingness of the public to support a leader with autocratic tendencies, the survey people said that they asked people whether it's preferable to vote for leaders who propose efficient solutions even if those solutions are not quite in line with democratic principles. I don't know how carefully the, the question was worded, but according to the people who took this survey, they, essentially what they asked was, what's more important, to have efficient solutions or to have democracy? Now, according to the pre-war survey, which was taken back in, about, um, in July, the 26 of the public, 26 percent of the public agreed that it's preferable to vote for a leader who is efficient but undemocratic. That was be this survey was taken before the war. 
so a quarter of the public, in other words, says they'd rather have an a, um, efficient leader who's not that democratic. Now, they, they, as I said, they, they conducted the survey again in November during the war, and it shows that the share of those who think that it's good to have an efficient government, even if it's not democratic, went up to 35%. It went from 25% to 35%. And they apparently, they, uh, they asked a similar question that examined the level of support for a strong leader who disregards the Knesset and the elections. And the rate of support for such a leader increased from 27% before the war to 34% in the war. In other words, in order to solve the nation's problems, approximately a third of the nation's Israeli citizens are currently in favor of a leader who might deviate from democratic principles. Uh, a third, 35%. Again, and I, have to, and I have to, again, say that the people who took the survey did not report who they asked. 1,500 people, we don't know who they are, asked. Were they asked Arabs, did they ask um, religious Jews, did they ask secular, or whatever. So I think there's something missing, at least in the way this is being reported. So what what their, um, the, these, their conclusion is, that in times of war, there's an increased pressure to speak in unison and to silence any dissent and contradiction of the basic democratic right of free speech. And accordingly, they said their findings indicate a significant decline in the public's commitment to freedom of speech. Prior to the war, 67% of the public believed that free expression should be ensured even for those who criticize the state of Israel. Now, in November, after the war started, the share of those who hold this belief declined to 54%, went down from 67% to um, 54%. And the conclusion is that there's a growing opposition to the activity of civil society organizations. That's another uh, question that was asked in July before the war, 32% of Israelis agreed that the activity of organizations that criticized this state should be banned. 32%. By November, 41% of respondents agreed with the viewpoint that the activity of organizations that criticized this state should be banned. In other words, nearly half of the citizens do not think critical statements against the state are covered by freedom of speech. Now, the anti-democratic impact of this war, according to the people who did this survey, is also evident in the attitude of the Jewish public toward the Arab public. They observed a sharp drop in support among Jews for increased efforts to provide equal rights to Israel's Arab citizens. Those who felt that they should have equal rights were like 56% in the public, and, it, and after the war began, it's now 41%. And at the same time, there's been a considerable increase in the share of Jewish citizens who support revoking the right to vote for individuals who refuse to acknowledge Israel's nation state or the Jewish people. 
The support rate for this measure has increased from 45% to 61%. In other words, 61% of people think if you don't believe that Israel is a state of Jewish people, you should not have the right to vote. So, all this suggests that the war has harmed public support for equality between Jews and Arabs and strengthened the nationalistic tendencies among the Jewish public. That's the results of this survey. So, the people who took the survey, the... Um, it made one caveat, one morning. The, the, the data showed that the immediate anti-democratic effect of the war in the public news is made proved to be short-lived and transient. Once the war ends and the sense of emergency diminishes, people may return to their previous positions. However, the impact of the war may, may turn out to be enduring. The traumatic experience Israel is going through right now may stay with us a long time and shape our political and value-based values for years to come. Now, democracy cannot be exist without a multitude of people who are committed to it and willing to fight to protect it. Today, which is well over two months after the outbreak of the war, According to this survey, we're witnessing a dwindling of the democratic commitment of the Israeli public. So, if this commitment doesn't regain its strength after the war, there'll be a, it'll be, it'll really change politics here. So, again, I gave the listeners the results of this survey, which shows that people are becoming less democratic now during the war. And of course, again, the the they didn't report uh, uh, among whom they took the survey, and uh, so I just pass this along because the they they published the results, and the results say that we're becoming less and less democratic. How true that is, I don't know, but the uh, the the latter school of government of uh, government diplomacy is a respect respectable institution, and their claim is that Israel is becoming less democratic. Uh, take it for what it's worth. I felt it was an important uh, news item. That's why I wanted to share it with the listeners. I want to change the subject now. Uh, the the uh, to talk more about what People are uh, reporting about the uh, about the war. I don't mean the conduct of the war itself. I mean the side effects, if you will. The uh, right now we depend very much on America. In the future, presidents from the left who believe Israel is a victimizer of Palestinians or isolationists, for whatever reason, could decrease aid to Israel or cut off supply lines to dictate longevity of a future war, even if Israel would be profoundly injured. Right now, the American government is supporting Israel very strongly, the Biden government. At the same time, you start hearing voices in the Biden administration are essentially telling America to slow down in its support of Israel. I think a lot of it has to do with the upcoming election, and the fact that there is a radical group in the Democratic Party, which is the, the president's party, 
were pretty much opposed to Israel. And if the president's looking forward to next year's election, needs the support of his uh, party as much as he can. So that will affect uh, the relationship with Israel. So the American president is essentially trying to balance his support for Israel with pressure from his base. And it, it, his base is telling him how to shape Israel's wartime policy. The So what, what is the leverage that the Americans have to Israel's action? That is that the American provides a tremendous amount of military aid. And therefore, that gives them a lot to say. Matter of fact, uh, the American Secretary of State uh, attended an Israeli Israeli government meeting uh, two weeks ago, which is really very unusual. Uh, President Biden has given a lot of leeway and a lot of support, but uh, the war is stretching out. Undoubtedly, I think, the, the president supports Israel's goal to destroy Hamas. And, uh, you know, the president calls himself a Zionist, and that's nice. But um, we're in an era where presidents of major American universities can't state that calling for the genocide of the Jews violates university policies on harassment. The... Um, the hearing by Congress of three uh, presidents of American universities, uh, they acted in a matter I think was really very disgraceful. So the, um, besides the fact that a growing number of Democrats are pressuring the president to call for a ceasefire now, which we of course be a victory for Hamas. As long as Hamas is not destroyed, uh, then it would be a victory for Hamas. Hamas must be destroyed. That must be the purpose of this war. So what's happening is that America has disproportionate leverage over Israel because its dependence on American arms, uh, military aid, and uh, the United States protects Israel and international bodies, like the United Nations Security Council. But the bottom line is Israel Israel needs freedom of action to confront enemies. We have big enemies, starting with Iran, which is developing a nuclear program. And of course, it has all these proxies of Iran, like Hamas in, in the Gaza Strip, Hezbollah, Houthis, and others. And the supply lines and stockpiled ammunition uh, and new things like uh, laser technology uh, has been Israel has been been United States has been supportive of Israel and all this uh, all this uh, all these things. These are the lifeblood of a military, and um, it's very important that Israel it has guaranteed resupply of weapons and munitions. So now what happens is there are a lot of young Americans, particularly in the Democratic Party, who sympathize with the Palestinians, despite the horror of what they did. So Israel's strategic planners have to anticipate the future when these voters, particularly these young voters, define a significant segment of the Democratic Party. 
see him. And also, the Republicans, particularly if, um, if uh, Trump becomes president, will be more um, isolationist, not, not that interested in foreign affairs. So we have a problem in both the Democrat and the Republican parties. So um, it's interesting that a, 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 a um, Harris-Harvard poll shows that uh, two-thirds of uh, Generation Z Americans think that Jews are, a class, are as a class, are opposers. Uh, that Generation C is the people who, uh, let's see, Generation Z, the people born between 90, uh, 1997 and 2012, that's people who are now uh, in the, starting in, let's say, they're born in 1997, the people uh, at the age of 25. So we're talking about younger, younger Americans. They're less supportive of Israel. So... Uh, there was a, um, a headline in the National Review uh, based on the poll that you, that the Class C see Jews as uh, our oppressors. Half of young Americans say Israel should be should be in, ended and given to Hamas. In other words, there's a growing number of voters voters in the United States who are pretty much anti-Israel. It's not like the old timers in America. The real old timers who remember the Holocaust and remember the founding of the state of Israel, that 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 generation is dying out. So the question is, can Israel go it alone? And that is a very very serious problem. Israel is pretty dependent on America. How long the relationship will last as the American electorate changes is an open question. Israel may not be able to build a state of the art fighter jet by itself, but the U.S. does value Israel's technological contributions. We have a lot of joint programs with the Americans. I think we have more than any other country. <clears throat> so Israel's long-range planning needs to be in, anticipate that a future American president may want to leverage supplying supplies to pressure Israel into uncomfortable compromises. America's willingness to continue its current level of military aid cannot be taken for granted. So what happens to do, Israel has to diversify its weapons procurement and produce more things itself. So uh, right now, Israel has to stockpile what it can, stuff it's getting from the United States. So... Uh, in other words, and this stuff comes to the United States by purchase, not by as gifts. So it will require substantial additional international financial resources, and uh, that'll be hard to come by because the economic effect, the effects of this war now on the Israeli, Israeli economy are likely to be very profound. <coughs> so some of these things we have to think about we may have an American government less friendly in the future, and we have to take that into consideration in our planning. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to start this section of the program 
by uh, reading a column that was written by Brett Stevens, who writes in the, uh, I believe, in either in, I think, in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, he wrote a column called Why I Can't Stop Writing About October 7th. And I want to read it to my listeners because I think every word that he wrote here is important. He wrote that uh, this is my last column for the year, and it'll be more personal than most. It's an effort to explain to myself as much as to the readers why I can't stop writing about October 7th and its aftermath. A few weeks ago, my mother was watching footage of a Jewish student being taunted and mobbed by anti-Israel demonstrators at Harvard after he tried to film them. I was born in, hi- born in hiding, said my mother. I, wanna di- I don't want to die in hiding. My mother was born in Milan, Italy, in 1940 to a family that had fled the Bolsheviks in Moscow, and then a few later, years later, they fled the Nazis in Berlin. She was baptized to avoid suspicion. One of her earliest memories is of being abruptly hidden under a nun's habit. It was only after the war, after she arrived in New York as a refugee, that she learned she was Jewish. America, to her, was the land in which you don't have to hide. That is no longer true. Well before October 7th, Jews were tucking their stars of David under their collars or hiding their kippot, their skull caps, under baseball caps to avoid being shunned or harassed. Synagogues and Jewish community centers are under constant armed guard. The ultra-Orthodox, who courageously do not hide their identity from anyone, were routinely routinely assaulted uh, or harassed. Synagogues and Jewish community centers were under constant armed guard. The ultra-Orthodox who courageously do not hide their identities routinely assaulted by bullies who think it's fun to sucker punch a Jew. But that reality was shamefully underreported by news organizations that otherwise see themselves as champions of the marginalized and oppressed. Everything that was true before October 7th became more so after it. Hate crimes against Jews which have nearly quintupled in the previous years, have quintupled from October 7th to December 7th of this year, compared to the same period in 2022. Subtext subtext became tagged. Gas the Jews was the chant heard from protesters at the Sydney Opera House. From the river to the sea, from the quads of once great American universities. The same students who have been carefully instructed in the nuances of microaggressions suddenly went very macro when it came to making Jews feel despised. The same progressive who erupted in righteous rage during the Me Too 
became somnambulant in the face of abundant evidence that Israeli women had been mutilated, gang-raped, and murdered by Hamas. The same humanitarians who cried foul over migrant kids in cages at the southern U.S. border didn't seem particularly bothered that Israeli kids were being held in tunnels or that posters with their names and faces were routinely torn down on New York street corners. And all this is likely to get worse. A Harvard-Harris poll conducted this month finds that 44% of American ages 25 to 34 and a whopping 67% of those ages 18 to 24 agree with the proposition that Jews as a class are oppressors. By contrast, only 9% of Americans over the age of 65 feel that way. The same generation that received the most instruction in the virtues of tolerance is now the most anti-Semitic in recent memory. Now, where does all this hatred come from? If your answer is Israel, then, to borrow a line I once heard from Leon Weaseltier, you aren't explaining anti-Semitism, you're replicating it. No self-respecting liberal would argue that Islamophobia is understandable because Muslims perpetrated the attacks of September 11th and other atrocities. But somehow, the types of excuses that are unthinkable when it comes to some minorities become essential context when it comes to Jews. As it is, the single-minded loathing of Israel is another expression of anti-Semitism. Turkey flies F-16 embalming runs against Kurds while relying on U.S. security guarantees backed up by nuclear weapons and progressive shrug. But after Israel experienced the equivalent of more than a dozen September 11s on a single day, some progressives instantly cheered it as an act of justified resistance. This, this side of the left, perhaps larger in cultural influence than it is in number, has the moral credibility of David Duke. Much of the right, with the dog-whistling obsession with replacement theory and its conspiracy theories is about nefarious globalists is no better. The fact that each side is in denial about his bigotry makes it that much more pernicious and pervasive. When progressives think the most despicable name in the world is Benjamin Netanyahu, and the far right thinks it's George Soros, we have a problem. There's a historical pattern in the early 1920s, the most important scientist in Germany was Albert Einstein. The most important politician was Walter Rathenau. And the most important philosopher was Edmund Husserl. All were Jews. They wound up exiled, murdered, or shunned. Today, the United States Secretary of State 
Treasury and Homeland Security are Jewish, as is the majority leader and the Senate and the president, president's chief of staff. Too often in Jewish history, our zenith turns out to be our precipice. Too often in world history, that precipice is also the end of free society itself. Anti-Semitism is a problem for democracy because hatred for Jews, whatever name or cause it travels under, is never a hatred for Jews only. It's a hatred for distinctiveness. Jews as Jews in Christian lands, Israel as a Jewish state in Muslim lands, authoritarian Sikh minority Jews uh, uniformity, authoritarian Sikh uniformity, and Jews represent difference. I don't think my mom will die in hiding. I wonder about my kids. America has been good to Jews, good to Jews since 1655 when the Dutch West Indies companies rebuked Peter Stuyvesant for refusing trade permits to some Jewish newcomers in what was then New Amsterdam. But if there's one lesson of Jewish history, that nothing good stays. And while we still say at the end, end of every Passover Seder, next year in Jerusalem, unquote. Uh, what I've been quoting for the last 10 minutes is Brett Stevens, and I think what he has to say is important. America is in trouble. I want to say a few words about the Red Cross. The Red Cross seems like holy to many people. The Red Cross can do no harm. However, uh, according to an editorial in the Jerusalem Post, which is based on facts, the International Committee of the Red Cross has been totally ineffective in procuring aid for the hostages held in Gaza by Hamas. Its lack of empathy and inability to fulfill its mandate illustrate how obsolete and useless the Red Cross has become. It's been more than 80 days since Hamas made its attack on Israel on October 7th. Hamas still holds children, elderly women and men, and Israelis and foreign workers. The Red Cross has not been able to visit the hostages or bring them notes from home or even verify their circumstances. The Red Cross has not pressed Hamas hard enough nor any of the other groups holding hostages to get access. Hamas, a terrorist group, has been allowed to run Gaza for the greater part of two decades. Yet, the international community has not held it to the standards of a government. Instead, Hamas leaders are hosted abroad, often by Western allies, and yet the group Hamas is not called upon to provide access to hostages that it holds. The 240 hostages kidnapped on October 7th are only the most recent examples of these crimes against humanity. Hamas has been holding a number of Israeli soldiers and the bodies of Israeli soldiers for almost nine years, and the Red Cross has not visited them. 
The world cannot be held hostage by the Red Cross. It has proven unwilling to do the most basic task to help victims. Rather than beg it to send medicine only to get cold, inhuman response, it's time for new leadership to emerge to offer people this essential support. Clearly, it's time to rethink the role the Red Cross plays. Its ineffective and callous behavior illustrates the need for a new organization that can play a more valuable role. Lacking the will to insist on access to the hostages that are they're not held by Hamas, by the way, they're held by other groups in Gaza, is one of the many examples that cry out for new leadership in the human rights sphere and for a new organization to pioneer the important work the Red Cross once did, but no longer does. There has to be an evaluation of something to replace the Red Cross, which has failed in its mission, particularly when it comes to Israel. Now I want to few, say a few words about a subject that I've spoken about before, but I think it, it deserves to be repeated. Since this program is only once a week, and you, all during the week the listeners read news and hear from other news agencies uh, about the reality here in the Middle East, and the, I want them to know what the reality really is as we see it. The uh, Many people thought that it would be possible to reach some kind of uh, Israeli-Palestinian reconciliation and peace. It all started almost 30 years ago when they brought the terrorists back from uh, North Africa. And people thought that the Palestinians would denounce and, and the, the, uh, the support of terrorism and uh, they would denounce the glorification of murdering Jews. Turns out that reality is quite different. A public opinion poll by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, which I've quoted in the past, it clearly shows that Hamas's barbarous uh, murder and carnage raised its prestige among the Palestinian public, which once again proves that the Palestinian collective is not a partner for coexistence with the Jewish state. The Palestinian population simply doesn't like Jews. For example, 72% of Palestinians justify the attack by Hamas on October 7th, when even among the residents of the Gaza Strip, many of whom are destitute, only 37% believe that the move was wrong. In other words, most, most believe the attack on the Jews was okay. In this context, it's not surprising that 63% of Palestinians believe that the way to realize their national, national aspirations is having an armed struggle against the state of Israel, while only 20% of the Arabs believe that these must be choose by by negotiating. And there is another another horrific datum point that emerges from the survey, which was done by a Palestinian organization. 
and it, it clearly illustrates how radical Palestinian society is. Only 10% of them believe that Hamas has indeed committed war crimes, even though they, they documented all of the atrocities they committed. Regarding the future of Gaza, 60% of Palestinians prefer to see Hamas rule the Strip, compared to only 7% who would like to see the Palestinian Authority rule under Mahmoud Abbas. In other words, the Palestinians are radical and there are no two ways about it. There are those who believe that hopefully after Israel gets rid of Hamas, that there will be an opportunity to renew the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. But they believe that the Palestinian Authority under Abbas should be strengthened in order to be part of the solution for the day after the collapse of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. They considered the head of the Palestinian Authority as Israel's partner and the one who represents the Palestinian people. That is absolutely wrong. Reality shows that Abbas and the Palestinian Authority are perceived differently by the Palestinians. At the beginning of his term in 2005, he won the support of the Palestinian public. But since then, there's been a huge turn in Palestinian public opinion, and the people are dissatisfied. By the way, he was supposed to have an election in four years after 2005, and he still hasn't had that election. More than three quarters of the Palestinians were not satisfied with Abbas, and 78% believed that he should resign from his position. And those who talk about putting a new Palestinian authority in charge with Abbas are simply wrong. The, the status of Abbas has weakened, and it particularly since October 7th, and it turns out that the, the, all those pushing for a Palestinian state ahead of by Abbas uh, are simply wrong. The, the, the Palestinian society is a radical one. It sanctions violence and terrorism, but also that the Palestinian public no longer wants to rule the Palestinian under Abbas. They want Hamas to lead them in their fight against Israel. We should not end with the, the idea of a two-state solution, but with the destruction of Israel. These are the facts on the ground, and they must be repeated. Thanks for listening. God willing, I'll be back next week.